Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode, we visit with L.C. Charles Fiore, author of Cowdy Loop, a novel of a father, John Gazi, his estranged teenage daughter, and the Great Recession of 2008. When Gazi's daughter, Jeannie, unexpectedly moves in with him, he takes this as an opportunity to one-up his absent father and become a real dad. They make an unusual pair, but when tragedy strikes, they must work together to resolve their differences or risk losing everything. Emily Gray Trado, author of The Talented Miss Farwell, had this to say about the book. As gritty and shrewd as Chicago itself, Cowdy Loop brilliantly probes the underbelly of our city's famed trading pit in the nadir of 2008. Her brutality and grace collide in John Gazi, Southsider, struggling dad, and a character I won't soon forget. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time. Join us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. Speaking of free stuff, if you like audiobooks and you go to libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm, and uh, sign up with uh, their audiobook service, uh, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and get a free audiobook. Last thing I want to tell you right quick before we jump into the episode is that we have what's called a Patreon channel, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's a place where our authors uh, and I do a deeper dive into the craft of writing and the business of writing. And uh, you can join us there and and support the podcast when you do for uh, as little as $5 a month or $8 if you tip. Uh, we put out a lot of content on that page, and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. I- I've certainly learned a lot about the craft and business of writing on our Patreon page. So join us uh, at Patreon or through our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Charles, welcome to the show. Landis, thank you so much for having me. This is a real honor. So Yeah, yeah, no, it's glad. And congratulations on the book. Thanks. It's been fun, you know. It's it's been really happy with how how it came out. So yeah, and we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about John Gossie today. And I agree with uh, what uh, Emily said and and in, in the lead that I read, uh, he is a character you won't soon forget. We're gonna talk <laughs> we're gonna talk about him uh, in the book. But first, uh, just to tell listeners, we know each other uh, from uh, from your role and my membership in the North Carolina Writers Network. And um, so t- tell our listeners a little bit about your role with the network and a little bit about the network. 
Absolutely. I am the communications director for the North Carolina Writers Network, and uh, we are a membership organization. We provide programs and services to writers of all levels of skills and experiences uh, in, in North Carolina, but also beyond around the Southeast. Uh, so we host conferences, hold classes, try to just give writers the resources they need to improve their craft. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll give my Charlotte Rears podcast endorsement to the North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great uh, organization, although I have missed being in community uh, over the pandemic. And I'm just wondering, although we're recording this uh, in late July and this, and this episode's coming out in uh, October, um, how did the network sort of, you know, navigate the pandemic? And since we're not really out of it yet, what's planned for the future? Uh, in, in some ways, in a lot of ways, the network was uh, as well positioned as we could be for something like the pandemic. Uh, we uh, we all work remotely and at our virtual offices anyway. So, you know, that Monday in mid-March when everything is shut down, in some ways, it was just another Monday for us uh, while the people scrambled to get, you know, figure out how to work remotely. Um, we, we had an online, um, we had online programs in place already. We had an online series of classes and we were able to expand that. Uh, and just kind of ramp it up for host, uh, let's see, I think three uh, entirely virtual conferences over the course of 2020 and then uh, our spring conference this year. So, Yeah, and it's hard to know now uh, in July when they're talking about the, the Delta variant and everything, what's going to happen in the fall. But I'm, I'm assuming that your goal would be at some point to get people back together at these conferences where we can meet and greet and talk and go in person to these events. We are uh, very careful to use the conditional uh, tense when talking about the fall, but uh, we our plan right now is to have an in-person fall conference in Durham uh, in November 19th through 21st and uh, with an online component because we understand uh, people may not be comfortable uh, coming out yet. And frankly, people have um, really been warmed up to the idea of being able to have educational opportunities from the comfort of their home. So we're, we're sensitive to that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, everybody get out there and get vaccinated. Let's get beyond this thing, and uh, we'll uh, we'll have that conference. I, and by that time, I'm, I'm, I should have a grandchild living in Durham. So uh, we'll see how that works out. Uh, well, congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. All right. Well, look. Let's shift here uh, our conversation to uh, the city of Chicago. It's uh, it's a setting for this book, Coyote Loop. Uh, and before we dive into the book, I want to talk about setting for a second. Uh, you write about Chicago in this book as if you know it well. Tell us about your connection to the city. I lived in Chicago for many, many, many years uh, and um, in some ways feel like a Chicago expat uh, still. So, um, but uh, yeah, and it was just, I wrote this book to really be what I like to call a love song to the city. I think the city plays an outsized role in the book. Uh, you know, there are familiar landmarks, uh, landmarks that'll be familiar to a lot of readers you know, the, the art uh, museum, you know, the downtown area. And then there are some, you know, uh, hole-in-the-wall restaurants that were favorites of mine that I was able to give some shout-outs to. So um, anybody who's familiar with Chicago or who has visited will certainly recognize the the, the great admiration I have for that city. So uh, that that's causing me to ask a follow-up on the love song side of things. Mm -hmm. If you're picking a genre, I mean, some of this could be almost a uh, heavy metal or, or 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 rap the way and we're gonna be getting into John Gazi, but how would you describe the music that would back up this soundtrack? 
I agree that it's a love song, uh, but not in the way that, you know, it's a, it's a love song that's been flipped, perhaps. You know, maybe I sort of imagine a Guns N' Roses uh, kind of version where, like, you know, I used to love her, but, uh, you know, you know that yeah. kind of thing. So, yeah. Uh, and you're into the music, right? I mean, you're, you're a podcaster that deals with uh, – uh, uh, tell us about your podcast. Yeah, I have a, a little podcast. It's the A440 podcast where we just um, – it's a440pod.com. And you, we just kind of talk about different aspects of music, talk to people who work with music in interesting ways. And it's just a, really just a way for me to geek out about music with people for, you know, half hour to an hour and under some guise of legitimacy because I have a podcast. So. But you can find it all on anywhere you get your podcasts. So. That's right. We're, we're, podcasts, we're not legitimate. We're just uh, pretending. But uh, we're having a good time doing it. Oh, this uh, is legitimate, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, well, look, so um, back to setting for a second because uh, – you know, I, one of the things that, um, you know, is featured on the cover of the book we're going to talk about and on uh, in the book itself is something called The Loop. And if you're not from Chicago, uh, you may not be familiar with what we're talking about here. Um, I went and had to Google it to be sure I knew where we were. But uh, tell us about The Loop um, and, you know, how it fits in the story. The loop uh, in Chicago basically refers to the kind of square area in the middle of the heart of downtown. It's where um, it's circled It's um, by the elevated trains. Uh, mm-hmm. And within that circle, within that loop are a lot of the financial um, is the financial district and a lot of the sort of, you know, the um, Willis Tower, formerly the Sears Tower, those kinds of things. Uh, just the, like the heart of the heart of the city, if you will, is is the loop in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. So I was there when I visited because we probably would have walked through those areas and the, the canals probably nearby as well. Um, and you see those trains going over top. And then as you describe in the book, they then sometimes go underground. Uh, but in that area that you described is something very important, the financial district. There's a lot of money inside the loop. Um, and there's this place called, uh, well, it's a trading floor. In, in your book, it's the pit. Um, this is where guys and gals make a lot of money, uh, betting, hedging, what have you talk about, uh, cause I think, you know, a little bit about this. Uh, you wrote about it as if you knew about it anyway. Um, what's your connection to this kind of life? Didn't you, didn't you clerk there or something or I, uh, my first job out of college was, um, as an executive assistant to the, uh, kind of executive offices at the Chicago board options exchange. I was badly miscast as a uh, theater major slash English kind of minor guy, um, but it was a crash course uh, in just Chicago finance, Chicago personalities, uh, just the city of Chicago itself. Uh, so, you know, because right in a very small area, you have the options exchange, but you also have the Chicago stock exchange, um, as well as a mercantile exchange, all very close together. So that area um, uh, there is just, kind of just really bustling with a lot of a lot of money, a lot of people with things to do, a lot of manic depressive personalities, you know. So um it was uh it's a really it's sort of on this in the, what they consider kind of almost the south loop, yeah. Yeah, so describe this uh the the, the pit that they find themselves in. It's uh it feels very male dominated, very crass, very pressure filled. Um give us a sense of what's there because you see it in the book. I read it uh um, but I want our listeners to get a feel for this uh, environment. At the options exchange, uh, you you enter, you come in through a door, and you're met by a set of escalators uh, going down to the trading floor. And when you come down these escalators, the sound of the trading pits was 
visceral. You could feel the sound in your body of the of guys crying out, uh, you know, yelling orders back and forth. And if you've seen Wolf of Wall Street, if you've seen any kind of, you know, if you watch MSNBC or whatever, like you can see, you've seen trading pits, like, right, these are guys waving little pieces of paper in the air and, uh, um, you know, just trading back back and forth, buying stocks, buying options and things like that. The sound is incredible. And these they stand around um, banks of monitors, uh, shoulder to shoulder, they're packed in just about as tight as you could fit human beings into one small area. And yes, uh, it was, um, you know, very male dominated and, uh, and it was very much, very much a, um, just a sort of almost primal feeling <laughs> when you were going down into those trading pits. It was uh, pretty overwhelming just to try to navigate your way through. So. Yeah. And from what I know, having met you and, and talked to you over the years, uh, I would sort of classify your your personality as the opposite of what I mean. You're 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 creative. You're 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 conversational. You're like I can't. I just somehow Charles, I just can't see you uh, as as a life in the pits. Am I right about that? It was yeah. It was definitely not a natural fit. I I, uh, I mean to be honest, when I uh, have what these days, I mean I haven't worked there now for uh, almost twenty years. Uh, when I but if when now I wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, having had some kind of stress dream, I mean, <laughs> I'm panicked or worried about something. I immediately—it's because I've just been dreaming about working at the options exchange, uh, having having had having having to go back there and work again. So, if the, well, I mean, the, the uh, stakes are high. You know, there's a lot of money on the line. Guys are in your face, and um, these, this is you know, this is uh, in some ways very much kind of that wild west mentality still in Chicago. You know. And but of course, it's worth noting that those trading pits no longer exist. They are mm. they are they were um, they were on the way out when I was there. They were probably at half capacity in the early two thousands, and now they've been just completely replaced by electronic trading. That entire trading floor has been cleaned out of those monitors and uh, pits, and now it's all programmers and ping pong tables and almost an expanded version of a startup company now. So. And that's almost scarier not to know what's going on, you know, behind those quiet uh, screens there. Uh, all right, well, let's do this. A uh, little first impressions. When you pick up the book and look at it, uh, the book cover, uh, I assume that's uh, uh, some segment of Chicago on the cover. Is that right? It, yeah, that's a, that's a view from, um, you know, Millennium Park, uh, Grant Park down there. Uh, one side is Lake Michigan. And then you have this kind of band shell, and you can kind of look up through it uh, and see the see the downtown area. Yeah, yeah and it's it's a little bit blurry, kind of a filter photo. And I'm wondering if there's any symbolism there that uh, that uh, Gandhi's life Gandhi's life was a little bit of a blur too. <laughs> I, I think Gandhi and the city share a lot in common. Uh, I mean, you know, they built Chicago out of the prairie, uh, out of a swamp. They had to re-engineer and a river uh, to flow backwards in order for this thing to even exist. And that right. sort of mentality of recreating uh, its own existence almost on a daily basis uh, exists for Gandhi as well. You know, he was a kid who grew up on the South Side. He had an absent father. He had a lot of challenging circumstances, but he makes something of himself. And uh, for all his foibles, uh, of which there are many, uh, you know, he can at least say, like Chicago, he can stand there and say, well, I shouldn't even be where I am right now, but I've, I've been able to make it, you know. Yeah. And the title, Coyote Loop. Um... You know, we're going to have a reading uh, here in a little bit uh, that we do on the podcast, and uh, you're going to read a section of the book that brings the coyotes uh, into the picture. But uh, I'm wondering, um, we know about the loop because you've talked about that. I'm wondering if the loop has any other um, 
you know, symbolism or metaphor to it uh, about the life that John God is it Godsey or God's? What is it? Godsey's great. Yeah, thank you yeah, so, so much. So, yeah. so John Godsey uh, is leading uh, that his life is almost caught in a bit of a loop. And it really is, and that's it's really that's a really perceptive reading of the title, uh, Landis. The his life is caught in a little bit of a loop. He can't help sort of, um, but make the same mistakes. But not only his life, the life his sort of there's a generational loop happening as well, where some of those, if you will, sins of his father have been transferred to him, and as he's uh, forced to kind of raise his daughter, he's seeing some of those same sins being transferred to her as well. And how do you break this loop? These loops of um, well, just not not great stuff. <laughs> yeah, From, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great. I, I really enjoyed the read. It's one of those books you you, you can't put down because uh, this guy is on fire from the very beginning. And uh, one thing I didn't know about you, I'll share with our listeners, is you've won a number of writing awards. You're very humble in that regard. You've novel of the year uh, from the Underground Book Reviews for your last great American Magic, first runner up in the Eric Hoffer Book Awards. Uh, that's no slouch of an award there for Green Gospel. Shortlisted for the Balconies Fiction Prize for Green Gospel, long-listed for the Crook's Corner Book Prize, Green Gospel, award-winning editor and short story fiction writer. Uh, you've had three or four books before this. And uh, I just want to tell our listeners, Charles, uh, this is sort of teasing this out. We're going to talk about on our Patreon channel, listeners, this idea of uh, publishing uh, with a small press, independent, traditional publisher, the pros and the cons, and maybe how that uh compares to doing it uh, on your own if you do it the right way. So we're going to do that. We're going to jump over to Patreon after this, but uh, congratulations, Charles, on all those awards. Thank you, Landis. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just extremely lucky and humble and humbled by it all. And uh, um, it's, it's been really, it's been really great. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, John Gonza, he's not humbled much, but he gets humbled a few times in this book. And uh, let's tell our listeners who he is a little bit more because before we have this reading and then who his daughter is, because they're going to both appear in the reading in just a few minutes. Uh, starting with uh, John Gonza, he's a wealthy options trader, cynical, foul-mouthed, and greedy. Did I get that right so far? That's so far so good. Yeah. So, so where did this guy come from in your mind? I mean, is it somebody you met? Is it a smorgasbord? Is it a combination you don't have to name names i don't want to get you in trouble yeah <laughs> thank you yeah um the uh well i mean he is definitely uh fiction uh for sure sure uh, but he's but he's an amalgamation uh, of uh there i mean i've never worked anywhere where the uh characters are quite as colorful in real life as uh the world of options trading and just trading in general so i was able to kind of pick and choose you know some things and tweak them and amplify them uh and also just it's uh, his voice just kind of kind of took off on me in the initial stages of writing this book. And uh, I just kind of held on for the ride, really. So. Well, and Charles, this guy, he, he spews, you know, profanity like uh, it, it's just a natural part of breathing. And uh, it's uh, it's the way he talks. It's probably the environment that he lives in. Uh, and then you meet his daughter, uh, Jeannie, and, and you introduce her to us in the book. And she's wearing a... Uh, a crucifix. Uh, she comes across as a devout Christian. Uh, and then there's a twist and a turn early in the book with her. Tell us about her. She's a, she's a uh, high school junior. She's a basketball standout. She has real, real um, hopes and possibilities of going to college on a basketball scholarship. And she's and by all appearances, the good kid, you know what I mean? Like a non-partier, good academics. She is um, the child of a divorced household. Uh, and she lives with her mother. She's a bit estranged from her dad. So uh, when she has to, when she finds herself in a position of having to uh, 
move in with her father. It's um, it, it gets a little bit stressful. <laughs> yeah, and, and so before the rating, I'm just curious when you're when you're describing this book to people, Charles, and they say, "Well, what what genre does this fit in?" I'm not sure that it that it's hard to really put it in a particular genre, is it not? I use yeah, I guess I just use very generic terms. I just um, I just say you know it's it's contemporary fiction. It's a modern right. novel. I, right. I for me for me because of the first person um, narrator and the fact that it's based in Chicago it has a lot of Saul Bellow to it. Uh, yeah. You know, or like you know Richard Ford kind of those kind of novels. Yeah, yeah, and it's very relational. I mean, it, you know, though we've talked about the gritty environment and working on the trading floor and everything, what we're really doing is getting into the mind of this character who's got to kind of do an about face to some extent if he wants to save his relationship with his daughter. So, um, you know, while we're dealing with uh, a character who's a bit on the extreme, we also see quite an arc for this character over the course of the book, right? Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's a lot about him that's very prickly, a very challenging character. Uh, you know, the, you mentioned the language. I think that's a fair, I, I tend to, when people ask about my book, I say, well, look, you should read it, but you should know that it's R-rated, you know what I mean, for language. Right. And that's right. really just, just a language. And, uh, but, um, but it's, but it's appropriate to the character, I think. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, you know, there's things about him that maybe are very big turnoffs from the get go. Uh, but hopefully if I've done my job as an author, there are other sides to him that we are kind of reveal themselves over the course of the book. And of course he does have to make a, make huge changes in order to, um, as we talked about before, kind of, you know, um, cut the loop off, you know, stop the loop yeah. that's been repeating. So. Exactly. He's a complicated character and he has to, uh, there's some reckonings in the book and we won't give away any spoilers that he has to deal with because of his own, uh, the way he's uh, acted toward the people that he works with results in some things that he's got to deal with. So, okay, well, we're, we're at the reading time. Let's do this. Uh, if you would set up um, for us where we are in the book and, uh, and then when you've done that, uh, just take it away with the reading. This is uh, still, you know, somewhat early on in the book. Uh, Jeannie, uh, who is John Gandhi's daughter, uh, is now living with him, and they've sort of um, found a way forward. They're sort of, and they're sort of, kind of settling into their um, domestic arrangement, if you will. So, and that's and that's pretty much all all you need to know. Jeannie perches on the kitchen countertop, ankles crossed, balancing her laptop. She wears leggings and a long sleeve shirt that covers most of her hands. Guess how many cattle are lost to coyotes every year, she asks. It's the kind of thing she knows I'll enjoy, the practical application of mathematics to real-world issues. As an actual number, I have no idea. As a percentage. Dinner tonight is pigs in a blanket. This meal was a luxury for me growing up. My father cooked it on special occasions that coincided with the first of the month when we were flush from payday. Having pigs in a blanket on a regular old Tuesday for dinner feels like a real indulgence. Jeannie and I will top them with grape jelly, powdered sugar, syrup, and butter. She wanted me to cook something. This is all I got. The pancakes begin to bubble, and I flip them. There are probably 40 million cows in the U.S., counting both dairy and beef cows. The dairy cows will never be eaten by coyotes because they're tucked away, safe in barns and dairies. So there's a quarter of the population right off the bat that won't be eaten by coyotes. I slide the spatula beneath the first pancake. Jeannie swings a plate over the stove and catches the flapjack as it tumbles. Then we do it again. I dip my measuring cup into the batter, pour a perfect circle on the griddle. 
Of the 30 million beef cows, figure 90 or 95% of those will never be vulnerable to a coyote attack, which leaves about 5%. We're talking the free-range beef cows, organic, exposed to the elements. Probably 2% of those actually share habitat with coyotes, so I'll guess 20% of the organic beef cows are slaughtered by coyotes each year. So about 0.2% of all cattle in the U.S. She makes no expression, just swings the plate over the stovetop and catches two more pancakes. She's reading with her other hand, sitting on the counter. That's it, exactly. Well, 0.23%, but still, well done. This is the problem with numbers, though. Coyotes kill less than a quarter of 1% of cattle in the U.S. each year. Phrase it like that, people shrug and figure, eh, no big deal. 4% of cattle die just because that's what cattle do. But suppose instead you tell someone that predators kill 220,000 cows a year and that more than half of those deaths are caused by coyotes. Then suddenly people take notice. A couple hundred thousand seems like a lot. Over a hundred thousand done in by coyotes alone. A population roughly the size of Ann Arbor, Michigan, murdered by coyotes each year. You can work up some indignation that way. They're the same sets of numbers, of course. By the time I'm through explaining this, Jeannie's yanking the spatula from my hand because the kitchen is filled with smoke, a smell like the dirty underside of a grill grate. Also, our smoke alarm is going off, blasting a rapid stuttering pitch unattainable by humans. I lift Jeannie up, a hundred pounds of her by the waist, and she reaches to hit the reset button. In the kitchen again, I wave away the dark clouds. On the griddle are two charred circles, now stiff and carbonized, lighter than air, what were supposed to be the final two flapjacks incinerated. Uh, Charles, thank you for that. Uh, so are you a, a, a connoisseur of uh, pigs in the blanket? I do enjoy a good pig in a blanket. I got to <laughs> say, um, it, was a, it was a treat for us growing up as well. So a little powdered yeah. sugar and grape jelly all day. <laughs> yeah. I like the way you turned uh, the math on its head here and pointed out uh, you know, how statistics never lie until they do, right? Yeah, exactly. You can make, I, you know, I took statistics in college and, uh, you know, well, the only thing I really learned from that class is they can, statistics can mean whatever you want them to. So, <laughs> Exactly. Um, well, so we see that there's a relationship. It's trying, he's trying to develop a relationship with his daughter, doing it the, you know, the only way he can here, talking about things he understands like math. Um, there are other ways that he tries to navigate through the, through the book, including a, a, a fun scene where he tries to bribe the basketball coach uh, who's kicked her off the team, which is typical for this particular character. Uh, the inciting incident, though, of this book, it starts out uh, when he finds out that his wife, his ex-wife, um, wants to move to Florida and is trying to get him to sign away his custodial rights to his daughter, Jeannie. And uh, would you say up to this point in time, he has been sort of an absent father? And this is kind of a uh, you know, it's it's a time that he's got to make a, a big decision in his life. That's exactly right. He this is this is the time when he realizes that you know this is his chance to to break the loop. If he ever wants to be a good father, he's got about you know eight to ten months to be able to do it, and uh, and that's going to require some pretty big changes on his part, have, being being a bachelor uh, for so long. So, so he tries to do it in in different ways. Of course, he he lets her move in at her request. He, he also invites her class to come down to the pit to uh, see how things work because she's asked for that. Her teacher wants to see that life. And then what happens when they get there? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, uh, the class comes down into the pit, and he's he he launches into his spiel, and uh, 
again, I think, like I mentioned, like in the, in these creating kits are probably hundreds of monitors, uh, and you can show anything you want from, you know, at one point in the book, they watch ESPN a little bit just to kind of, for a change of pace, instead of usually what they're watching is the numbers scroll past. And, uh, someone during this school trip commandeers the, uh, video recorder, video player, and shows some truly inappropriate uh, material on the, on, the, uh, on the banks of monitors, uh, which doesn't go over so great with the parents of, of the school trip. So. Exactly. As if the kids you know, hadn't been Googling porn so far already, but it does happen to show up on the field trip, which is something that doesn't work out too well for him as a hopeful to be dad uh, who's in her life. Uh, rough start. Well, yeah. <laughs> rough start. Rough start. But as I said, it's a fun book. It's um, got a lot of uh, interesting characters, um, engaging characters, and and a lot of themes here. You're dealing with you know fatherhood. You're dealing with the money and the greed involved, uh, the teenage rebellion, but also the recession of that particular time, two thousand eight. Um, why why that for that setting, Charles? I was living in Chicago at that time, I think, and um, or I was, and um, but you know I remember it very well. The um, you know people were had you know just purchased condos um, that for you know you know uh, five hundred thousand dollars, and the next day they were worth half that. Uh, they were just completely underwater, just walking away from mortgages. Everyone was leveraged because everyone was taking out um, home equity loans on these five hundred thousand dollar condos, and suddenly they owed, owed two mortgages. Neither of which would cover would be covered by the if they sold their condo. Um, it was just a real, real tough um, environment. People were, you know, people were out of work, and uh, there were a lot of people were just really scrambling in the late aughts to figure out how to how to move forward after after the housing bubble uh, burst. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, well, listeners, you need to go out and uh, pick up the book and uh, read it. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, very engaging. Uh, shows you a side of Chicago that I did not see when I was there just to watch. Uh, baseball and football games but uh he'll walk around uh but uh let's do this charles before we, before we wrap up a few writing life questions um since you've got a very busy job as uh you know communications director you're also doing podcasting other things writing books and whatever how do you balance uh, your writing time with uh with all these other things including your family well as best i can uh <laughs> i just try to make it a priority uh you know if you can it's nice to be able to get an hour or so a day um but that's not always possible. So sometimes I'm waiting for my kid to finish a lesson. I'm writing in the car or, um, you know, before I go to bed or wherever, you know, just here and there. Um, but the important thing, I think, is to have the, have a project going on and, and be thinking about it all the time and um, just working on it bit by bit. Even in, even 10 minutes a day, you know, uh, you, you can be surprised how much work you get done. You come back mm -hmm. in a week and you realize, wow, I didn't realize I did that much work over the past week. But there it is. So. Um, mm. It's just a little, little bit at a time these days. So, so some authors kind of go from one book to the next. Uh, other authors sometimes have ideas that are percolating around in their head for for years. Uh, for this particular book, is this one that you know, came to you and you just wrote it in sequence from you know after finishing your last book, or has this been an idea you've wanted to write about for some time? No, this book was you know just a real real surprise. Um, it developed out of a short story I was working on, and and like you know the voice he was just, he came fully formed. So it was really just a matter of uh, unleashing John Gonzi on the world and seeing what happened. And uh, they haven't all been like that, but um, this one, this one came together pretty quick, um, which was, you know, a blessing. You take it when you take it, when you get it. So. Yeah. And a little bit about your process for writing a novel like this. Um, do you just, do, do you do that? Put one foot in front of the other, write an hour a day. Is that your, is that kind of your process to get this done? Do you use any special software or what? 
I don't. I do uh, still write everything longhand first. Mm-hmm. Uh, my initial drafts are longhand, pen pen to paper, um, because because uh, I'm old. First of all, and that's how I used to write when I grew up. Uh, but second of all, uh, I think when I transfer then that longhand to the computer, that's actually an, edit, an editing process for me, right? So I'm actually editing the longhand into the computer. So that's one step in the draft. That's a whole entire draft I get out of the way early on. And then once that kind of first draft is over, um, it's entirely electronic, you know, mm-hmm. more or less. So. Well, I take my hat off to you to write uh, longhand. I, I know a lot of authors who do that and they talk about how the brain connects through the hand of the page. But uh, when it came to the point that I could no longer read my own handwriting, that was not an option for me. <laughs> so, so I just have to type it out. Uh, now, now, Charles, you have, just to wrap this up here, you, you've had uh, you've heard a lot of advice over the years attending North Carolina Writers Conference uh, workshops and events. And, uh, you know, without naming writers' names or anything, what are some of the tips you've heard over the years, uh, whether it's the craft or business side, that sort of have resonated with you when you think about writing? Um, that's a terrific uh, segue because actually our North Carolina Writers Network fall newsletter is all about uh, advice. This, this we, We've that's asked great. dozens of writers to give advice. So that's great. Um, so, uh, uh, But I will, one thing I do wish I'd been taught early on uh, and that, that I don't know gets talked about enough even uh, is this idea of revision, right? Like even like short stories, they don't come fully formed out of your head. You're not really supposed to just sit down and write a perfect short story. Uh, and, you know, unless you're like Joyce Carol Oates or something, you know what I mean? Uh, every, the rest of us need to like revise. And that's not only changing, you know, finding typos. That's not revision. Like there's, you can move things around, change characters, get rid of characters, macro revisions. And that process of revision, I mean, I think because especially in the workshop environment, you're, there's such a time constraint. You know, you don't really have time to work to revise a story over the course of several weeks. Um, but I think that revision process is something that, eventually you discover as an author, that's really, it's really, that's really key, you know? Um, and it just, I just wish there was a way for that to get taught more and maybe talked about more. So. Yeah. We've done a few Patreon episodes on revision and, and I'm, I'm a big believer in it as well. Not because I love it necessarily, but because I see the value in it for the finished product. Uh, hopefully uh, by the time this comes out in October, I'll be very close to announcing the release of my next novel. And I have to tell you, it went from like a hundred and, 20,000 words down to about 89,000 words with a bunch of bunch of revisions and I'll still knock at it some more before then but it's uh it's one of those things Charles and I think you probably agree that uh you know it really does improve the overall manuscript and it helps you tighten and figure out what characters should be there and what scenes should be there and what what the ones that are out of order and and then the best part is at some point something's going to happen where you say wait a minute I've got a really good idea I need to stick that into Exactly. I, I find that when I'm working on a longer project, like suddenly everything is informing that book. I'll just be walking around, moving through the world, and you'll come across something and you'll say, oh, that's perfect for, you know, <laughs> chapter six. I don't even know how that happened, you know. So um, <laughs> right. I, think, I think because as in, you know, to get a little woo-woo about it, I think when you're creating art, then you're suddenly open to um, artistic influence a little more. You know? that's, so, that's great. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great. Listeners, I say we're going to jump over to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash charlotte readers podcast uh jump over there as little as five dollars a month eight dollars if you tip and get over a hundred exclusive episodes on the craft and business of writing and uh, you'll hear charles and i talking about something that i'm very interested in discussing which is uh, this idea of uh you know what to expect when you publish with a small press publisher things like distribution what's in a contract those type of things so join us over there charles hey man thanks a lot for uh, joining us uh 
on Charlotte Readers Podcast to discuss your book, Cody Luke. This has been a whole lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.